Have you ever lost something that's valuable and you have that sinking feeling in your stomach like, oh my goodness, where is that? Maybe you've, you've put a ring down and it was a very expensive ring, a very meaningful ring, something that was in the family, and you're, you're scurrying around trying to find it. Or maybe a watch. Or maybe kids, you have a, 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 this really uh, cool little toy or something and, and all of a sudden it's missing. And oh my goodness, is it in the car? Is it at the house? Is it, did we leave it at the restaurant? And... You're looking all over for it, or, or uh, maybe you've lost your wallet, and, and uh, so now you're tearing the house apart looking for that. Or your car keys, and you're late, you're on your way out the door for a meeting, and you're just frantically going around. Or something that maybe everybody can identify with, you lose your phone. You know, speaking of valuable things, the, the cell phone, what a wild thing. I mean, at one point it wasn't a, a essential or important and then it evolved from this World War II radio to like a big bag with a shoulder strap and a cord, and then it became a clam shell piece of device, and then they put the internet on it, it became a smartphone, and then it became your office, and then your whole calendar and email and life and everything was on there, and then you canceled your landline, some of you, like I did, and you don't even have a landline anymore, and so the phone is kind of the office and everything. And uh, have you ever seen anybody lose their phone? Oh, they're tearing the place apart, the phone, the phone! Uh, somebody call my phone. Oh, no, it's on silence. No, it's on silent. Oh, I left the phone at the coffee shop. Oh, my goodness. They get in the car. They tear off. They make, you know, baby driver look like kitty bumper cars. Get out there. Oh, the phone. And then they find the phone. Yes, yes. They put the, they put the best robe on the phone. And then they, they call their neighbors and they say, kill the fatted calf. The phone that was once lost is now found. Come to my house for a party. You know, this is the world we live in now. Well, today's text, and over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at um, this incredible and powerful, beautiful teaching Jesus gives in Luke 15 about things that are lost that have become found. This next series over the next seven weeks is called Extravagant Grace. And I've called it Extravagant Grace because as we unpack Luke 15 over the next seven weeks, we're going to see that God is way over the top. His love is way over the top. His grace is way over the top. Uh, His patience is way over the top. He is extravagant in his love and his care for the lost. And so uh, before I read this, um, I'm going to read the first ten verses because there are three stories that make up one parable. In fact, I'm about to to read it, but Luke, uh, the the author of of Luke... um, when he talks about these three stories about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and two lost sons, he uses the Greek word parabolon. And parabolon is where we get the English word parable from. And I need you to know this. I'm not teaching you Greek for no apparent reason. He does not use the word parabolas, which would be the plural form, which means these three pictures are telling one story. These are not three distinct teachings. It's one teaching. It's like having artwork in your home, three pieces of art that are all forming one picture. That's what's going on here. So today, we're going to look at the first two. We're going to look at the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then over the next six weeks, which is the largest story that Jesus unpacks more fully, we're going to explore this lost son so that we can see the God of the scriptures is extravagant grace. So for those of you who've been in the church for a long time, you've been Christians for a long time, you know, my prayer is that over the next seven weeks, that your heart is going to be rejuvenated and come alive in seeing God's grace for you, not only what it is for you, but what it's actually going to do in you. And for those of you who are here at Redeemer who are uh, searching or uh, seeking, exploring faith, then really my prayer for you is over the next seven weeks that you're going to actually see the heart of the God of the Scriptures for you, His great love and grace. 
for you. So I'm going to read Luke 15, um, the first 10 verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that is lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is God's word. Now, who is Jesus' target audience? for these three stories. He's, he's sitting there, he's eating with tax collectors, prostitutes, social outcasts. Religious people are grumbling about it. And Jesus turns in response to their grumbling. And so the, the intended audience here is the religious crowd. And verse 3 tells us that, right? He's not trying to get the attention of immoral outsiders. Jesus is rattling the cage of these moralistic insiders. And so when they heard these three parables, the sheep, the coin, the sun, their hearts weren't melted into warm fuzzies of sentimentality. They actually got thunderstruck and infuriated, these religious people. There's a reason for that, which we're going to unpack, because Jesus' goal here is not to tell heartwarming stories. This is not like Jesus' intent is not to give us a Hallmark series where we just go, oh, it's not why he's doing it. He's, he's, he's turning to these grumbling religious people who have a problem with the company that Jesus is keeping, and he says, we need to, you're grumbling, I'm going to do some mic dropping, and we're going to be really clear. So he's shattering religious categories. He's actually shining a spotlight on both the extensiveness of our need and the extravagance of God's grace. And so here's today's sermon in a sentence. Our need for God's grace is constant, which humbles us. The depth of God's grace is extravagant, which encourages us. And the work of God's grace is potent, which makes ministers out of us. But first, let's look at this first piece about how our need for God's grace is constant, which humbles us. Jesus begins by describing us as utterly lost and utterly hopeless. It's actually a very sobering opening. It's a really sobering opening. We live in Kitchener-Waterloo. It's 2017. There aren't sheep around, you know, walking down Weber Street. So for us, it's kind of like this warm story of a shepherd. But for them, they were really acquainted with sheep. So for them, it was pretty sobering for the religious crowd to hear that the lost, and of course, he's now inferring that it's them. It's not immediately obvious here. But by the time we get to the end of Luke 15, it's very clear Jesus is speaking to not only the you know, these notorious sinners, but also the religious people. And uh, 
it's, it, and it's shocking that he would use sheep, because if you were a, a Pharisee, I mean, my inner Pharisee, if I had to pick an animal to represent myself, and I only had the Old Testament scriptures to kind of go on, then the animal that I would pick would have been the eagle from, from Isaiah 40, right? That's, that's the, you know, fly like an eagle. That's me. That's what the animal I would pick. This competent, righteous, you know, that, that's what the Pharisees would have picked. And Jesus is like, actually, that's not the one. You're a sheep. And so there's this wild, shocking, uh, you know, imagery that he gives about this. Because sheep lose their direction, lose their way like no other, no other animal. There is not another animal in the animal kingdom that gets as, is as lost and is incompetent when it is lost as a sheep. And Jesus picks this one, and everybody was, of course, acquainted with that. I mean, if you, if you uh, find a lost sheep, you can't just point it home and it'll get there. You can't give the sheep pointers and it will arrive. You can't coach it. You, you have to either tie it up and carry it yourself. You've got to lead it all the way. Um, sheep are, are, are crazy. They will, and the reason they get lost and the reason they wander, and of course I, I don't know anything about sheep so I had to research this, but they will actually see grass that is, that is in a very dangerous place, and this happens more often than you'd think. And it'll be on the edge of a cliffside, and they're like, oh, that looks pretty good. So they'll go up and they'll eat the grass, but then they have no conceivable way of getting down from there, and they fall to their deaths. This happens. This happens in the Netherlands. This happens in Turkey. This happens in New Zealand. I mean, you know, I'm just researching this, and sheep just have a tendency, if they wander and if they get away, uh, they're like, yeah, that looks good. That grass looks good. I'll go feed on that. You know, in fact, there was an article in the BBC uh, a number of years ago, and one sheep went over a uh, cliff... It was eating the grass on the edge of the cliff. It goes over the cliff to its death. And 399 more sheep follow it over. So now there's 400 fluffy... I'm sorry, kids. This is a very graphic sermon. 400 fluffy sheep at the bottom of this cliff face. You want to know something? Their fluff, those 400 fluffy bodies cushioned the fall of another 1,100 sheep. This is, this is an article in the BBC that I was reading this when I'm researching sheep because I don't know anything about sheep. 1,500 sheep go over the edge. And the first 400, you know, sacrifice their lives and serve as a big mattress for the rest of them. So the ancient world are well acquainted with this. So when Jesus turns to these grumbling Pharisees who are complaining about the company that he's keeping with sinners, he's like, okay, we're going to just, we're going we're gonna to re, recalibrate your religious categories here for who you guys uh, kind, of see, kind of seem to think you are. Now, since Genesis, man, we have wandered from God. We just did a, a long series on Genesis and kind of explored how from the beginning the deception was uh, from the devil is, hey, you can live independent from God, be fulfilled apart from God, so do that. Here's some fruit. This will fulfill you. So metaphorically speaking, there's been metaphorical fruit from, from uh, Genesis where we've all looked at things and said, no, that grass That'll feed my soul. I'm going to make that ultimate. Since the beginning, since Genesis, we as sheep have always been looking to feed on something and make it ultimate, whether it's our reputations, our careers, our education, how sexy we are, how dateable we are, how popular we are, how successful we are, how many toys we have. What, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's a thousand things that can be, kind of become these mini messiahs that we say, that'll feed my soul. So uh, since the beginning, this has kind of been the problem. And what Jesus is saying here is he's like, you, I have to tell you something sobering. You can't save yourself. You need total rescue. You're incapable. And that is really offensive. 
for not only the modern mind, but also the ancient mind, because we don't like to see ourselves as that incapable. We would prefer Jesus said, you know, you're like dogs that have gone astray, because at least a dog can contribute to its salvation. I mean, you can whistle and point to the, and the you know, if you find a lost dog, it'll, it'll just skip around its master's feet and follow it all the way home. Sheep won't do that. That's why shepherds have sticks, you know, because the sheep aren't just going to follow, the, you've got to keep nudging, 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 nudging the entire way home. The shepherd literally has to do everything. There's no cooperation. In fact, sometimes you've got to tie them up and, and carry them back. The shepherd has to go all the way home. So this whole idea is utterly offensive. I mean, it was offensive to the religious crowd. It's offensive to us today. Say, you know, you know are we really that incapable? This doctrine of sin is so repugnant to our modern minds. It was, it was repugnant to the, the Pharisees' minds because it seems backwards because we like the idea that we are inherently good. You know, we don't want to hear that we're sheep that are lost that need saving. We, want, we like this idea that we're inherently good. We like the ideology of thinkers who are like the 18th century French philosopher Rousseau who said that man's nature is inherently good and that it's society that corrupts us, right? Rousseau's, what Rousseau said is way more attractive than the kind of way that Jesus talked. In fact, Rousseau's greatest work, arguably his greatest work, uh, was a piece called The Social Contract, and it was all about freeing man from his chains by, his chains by creating an ideal society. And in 1762, he wrote this treatise on education, and he basically said, well, we're naturally good. All these vices are alien to us. It's the culture that's doing it to us. And when our ego hears that, we hear Rousseau, or you hear you know, Kant, or the other guys that he influenced, uh, Karl Marx, and we hear that, and we look at it on paper, and we go, yeah, that sounds right. You know, I think that deep, deep down, you know, I'm a good person. And then Jesus comes along and says, calls us sheep. And there's this, there's this disconnect that our egos can't handle. But I mean, it, 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 so it's, it's, it's offensive, because Jesus places salvation beyond our reach. But what the Pharisees believed was that salvation was actually within their grasp. And so, you know, Jesus is saying, listen, salvation is outside of us, and the modern mind wants to say, well, I think it's inside of us. And so when Rousseau and even modern thinkers who follow the idea of Rousseau believe, or even, you know, theologians today would talk like Rousseau, say, you know, hey, um, deep, deep down there, there's good stuff there, and if you just dig down deep enough, you can save yourself. If that was true, we have a... We have this irreconcilable problem, right, as you look out into the world, as you check your news feeds when you get home and say, what's happening in the world today? If Rousseau was right, then we've got this empirical evidence that says there's a problem. How can a society composed entirely of innocent people create a culture that's not innocent? How can a society of people who deep, deep down are all born good universally, if he was, if he was correct, and I'm arguing that he isn't, right, because I'm going to go with Jesus, I'm putting all my chips on grace here. But if deep, deep down we were all good, then how does a society of inherently good people become corrupt in the first place? So we have this problem, which, of course, Genesis answers for us as, as Christians and says, well, no, the problem is that your parents, your original parents, Adam and Eve, were born perfectly good, and they were innocent, and they had their you know, free will to obey or disobey God, and God gave them the dignity of free will to do that. And in their deception and their sin and their treason, we are all born not good, but lost. And when I say... Uh, not good. I don't, I don't want to introduce moral categories. I want to stick with what Jesus is saying. This is about being lost or found, right? And so um, this has been the problem from the beginning. So the Savior of humanity cannot just be 
social reengineering because world history as we study it is one big long saga of social reengineering well if we could just reengineer ourselves uh, you know then we would get better i mean are we getting better I think that on the one hand, there's a lot of things in society we can affirm and get excited about and see generosity and love and self-sacrifice. And uh, we can see these uh, beautiful expressions of, of uh, making great strides in human rights or ecological responsibility um, or, or uh, social justice. So I think there's a lot of beautiful things about humanity we can affirm. But it's a paradox because at the same time, in my 42 years on the planet, which is nothing... We have ways of hurting people today that didn't exist when I was 10. I mean, not only do we continually do the things we used to always do to not love and hurt each other, but we've invented new ways to do it. So I'm not convinced that all we need is more education. You would think that after two world wars, and we're the most you know, educated uh, generation that's um, been, we've got more information available to us than ever, you would think that after two world wars we would have all put our guns down. So that was not good. We should all put our guns down. But what have we done since the Second World War? We've built bigger guns. So I'm not convinced that deep, deep down, down, you know, we, are, we can save ourselves. I think that Jesus got it right in saying, like, we're sheep. We need saving. We need a, we need a spiritual renewal. And so uh, as we look uh, through world history, we find this. You've got this injustice and violence done in the name of religion. The church can't, we can't turn a blind eye to that. We've got to look back and say, what a nightmare that so many things have been, ills have been done in the name of religion, but also so many things have been done in the, in the name of those who have wholesale rejected religion. So we kind of look at it and say, humanity has a problem. Humanity is saving. We do need a savior, but it's not us. And so Jesus is provoking this right from the get-go, right from the beginning. He gives us this imagery uh, of this lost and helpless sheep, this imagery of an incapable, totally incapable coin, not because Jesus is being condescending. Not because he's being belittling. Not because he's trying to be insulting. He's trying to be sobering. He's trying to wake, up, wake, wake, wake us up. Wake up uh, the original audience. Wake up the religious crowd as well. To see this. Because the religious crowd at the time and the religious crowd today is convinced that God owes them salvation based on the good lives that they're living. So all of their hope and their trust was not actually in the Son of God. Their hope was in their performance before God. So Jesus offers these three stories. And for the religious, the linchpin of salvation, for those Pharisees who were there, the linchpin, the thing holding it all together, was not belief in the Son of God. It was their performance before God. So Jesus is like, there once was this lost sheep. There once was this lost coin. Let's, let's reframe our religious categories and, and, and start to look and be, wait a minute. Maybe there's something that Jesus is getting at here. And the thing with sheep, which humbles us, church, is that sheep don't just get lost once. So our rescue isn't one and done. We, those of us who've placed our faith in Christ alone this morning, we've been rescued from sin and death. We are forgiven and free. And that's a settled issue. That, that's done. But over the course of our life, the work of the Spirit in our hearts is constantly doing a renewal because our hearts want to wander and feed on that metaphorical grass that we want to make that ultimate. So I'm going to find my identity here. I'm going to find my fulfillment here. And the church, universal, continues to struggle with that. And so the beautiful work of grace is not just something that we needed past tense and now we're grace graduates. But rather, whether you're here today and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ and you're exploring Christian faith or you've been a Christian for decades... We're both in need 
of grace. Either the grace of either saving grace, rescuing grace to respond to Christ, or renewing and reforming grace because we still chase after, our hearts chase after the grass on the cliff. That's what we do. And so the gospel is this great, you know, leveler of the playing field. So it's humbling. God's grace is something we constantly need and it humbles us. But let's move on. The depth of God's grace is extravagant, which actually encourages us. So let's, again, revisit this picture Jesus gives. These religious people start off, they're grumbling. They look at the company Jesus is peeping. They say, oh, you're those kind of people. Well, we're, the, we're this kind of people, and you're that kind of people. Clearly, you know, you me, do you see that? We're better than you. And so Jesus responds to this because the religious people think they have everything figured out. Religious people divide the world up into good people and bad people. Good, bad. That's how religious people think. The churches where good people go, oh, the people that are at home right now and not in church, they're bad people. Oh, Christian schools is where good kids go, and public schools are where bad kids go. Really? Look at what Jesus does. Jesus does not divide the world up into good people and bad people. Look at his categories. This is what he's doing. He's trying to shatter religious categories. The Pharisees are like, we're good, you're bad, why are you eating with the bad people? Don't eat with the bad people. Jesus turns around and goes... We're not, I'm not dividing the world into good and bad people. I'm dividing it into lost and found people. Which is why, for those of you who are here who uh, are, are new to church, or you're fed up with church, or you're exploring church, or you see the church history and you go, the church is a beloved mess. True. Because the church is not full of good people. The church is full of, is full of found people who are in varying stages of renewal. So you might find some people who say, yeah, my faith is in Christ, and they're beautiful, loving, generous, patient, caring people, right? You can see love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, kind of in their lives. Those are, that's the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 20, uh, 5.22. You can see that. But you can also find somebody else who says, yeah, I'm a Christian, my faith is in Christ, and they're, you don't want to have coffee with this person. How can that be possible? Because Jesus divides the world up into lost people and found people. And once we're found, if we have uh, placed our faith in the grace of Christ's, uh, of his rescuing grace, then the result of receiving that rescuing grace is we desire that grace to renew and reform us. So we're on a trajectory, but everybody's in varying stages of that. This church included. This is not a church of good people. This is, we are found people in various stages of renewal. So we don't want to think religious. So you think you're good and, the, and your neighbors who aren't in church today aren't good? That's the pharisaical way of dividing up with the world. This is where the good people are. Oh, we got to... If you want to put your kids in Christian school because the education is going to be more solid or whatever, then that's beautiful. But if you're putting them in Christian school because you think it's a bubble where all the good, where all the good kids are, I hate to break it to you, but you need to get out more often. You need, to, you need to, like, hang out in some Christian schools, talk to some kids who've gone some quote-unquote... I mean, there's no such thing as a Christian school... Right? It's just these teachers who are, who are, hopefully their faith is in Christ, and they're bringing the grace of Christ to the classroom. So Jesus divides us up. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Lost and found, guys, because they're grumbling at the company that Jesus is keeping. He's shattering the categories about sin and salvation. Right? The religious people are keeping God's law more than anybody, and Jesus is inviting them to put themselves in the parable. He's inviting all of us to put ourselves in the parable. So if we put ourselves in the parable, who are we? We're the lost sheep, we're the lost coins that have been recipients of this great grace. That's very encouraging, and that does something to us, absolutely. 
And so the religious heart of the Pharisees, as you go through the Gospels, you discover this. They think that their good behavior has put God in their debt. I've been so morally upright, I've been so obedient, I've been such a good rule keeper, God owes me. He owes me salvation, he owes me a good life, he owes me health, he owes me wealth and happiness. Because I have checked all the boxes. That's the way the Pharisees operated. And so Jesus is now telling the story, say, God is not in your debt. Because that was the way that they thought about it. And so he gives us this, this imagery. And he says, um, you know, essentially, I'm going to borrow from Jonathan Edwards. He's a theologian in the 18th century. And he said, you know, religious, religion presents God as useful. The gospel presents uh, God as beautiful. And so Jesus is coming to show extravagant grace of this beautiful God, this shepherd, uh, this woman sweeping the house, searching and seeking and being relentless in, in looking for one who uh, is helpless to, to, to find themselves. That lost coin announces that the gospel is not good to great, but it's, it's lost to found. Right? The only way for us to understand this parable is to see the great irony. Who is Jesus eating with? He's eating with people that the religious people consider lost. But the very fact they're eating with Jesus means they're found. Not that tax collectors and prostitutes and social outcasts weren't previously lost, but the point is, he's eating with them. In the, near e- in the ancient Near East, if you ate with somebody, it didn't just mean, hey, we're buds and I'm being kind to you. It meant, I'm willing to commune with you, I want to have community with you, I want to be a part of your life, I welcome you. So that's why the religious crowd is freaking out, because Jesus is like, I'm going to build a community with these people. In other words, the shepherd, he went out, and he found that they're, they're not lost anymore. If you're eating with Jesus, you're not lost. So the great irony here is that they were lost, but they're found, and the religious people are lost. And Jesus is presenting this, such amazing grace, so that the religious people can be found. We, like to, we, get, we get religious about religious people. We, get, we become Pharisees about Pharisees. We see the Pharisees. Yeah! We puff our chests out. I understand grace. Not like you, you idiot. That's how much I under, understand grace. Moron. Right? I've done it. I'm guilty of that. And so Jesus is now flipping this script, and he's demonstrating amazing grace. I'll borrow from Martin Luther. Um, he said this he, in a sermon that he wrote on the lost sheep. He said, We're only made righteous through Christ. The lost sheep cannot find its way home, and a lost piece of money cannot find itself. So notice the posture of the shepherd. Notice the posture of the woman as they look for the sheep, as they look for the coin. It's a picture of the heart of God. We don't find a God who just cuts his losses and leaves what's lost with indifference. He doesn't calculate the ROI and decide that the outcast isn't worth it. Right? This woman, she lights a lamp, which means she's willing to look all night long. You don't light a lamp in the middle of the day. I mean, this just demonstrates this great patience, this great grace, this, this great relentless uh, uh, chase of the Heavenly Father for us. He will stop at nothing. He's relently, relentlessly pursuing us. He went to great lengths to save us. He left, you know, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes and looks. The woman leaves her comfortable spot and searches the house. God leaves heaven and he clothes himself in the dirt of creation and he comes and he lives the perfect life we should have lived but we didn't and he dies on a Roman cross in 33 AD under Pontius Pilate and he writes himself into human history so that we could know him, so that we could see him, so that he could find us, so that we could be found. 
This is the great grace of what God has done. His, he stopped at nothing. It cost him everything. The depth of his grace is extravagant. And if you're here today and you're exploring Christian faith, if you're here today and you've not placed your faith in Christ yet, can I encourage you to consider something? You being here today and hearing this is the great shepherd in his great love and grace providentially reaching out to you, drawing you to himself. That like all the rest of us who don't deserve it, that the lost would be found. And so our need for God's grace is constant. Because not only do you need to rescue sheep once, but their hearts wander and all of the church, all of our hearts wander. And the depth of God's grace, it's extravagant. It's beyond what we would ever conceive and do. And, and the final thing we want to look at is that the work of God's grace is potent. It actually makes ministers out of us. And this is what I, where I want to kind of conclude. As we consider the work of God's grace in our lives, let's bring this parable full circle again. What triggered it from the beginning is that the religious people are grumbling. Jesus is giving grace to all the wrong people, in their view. And this gospel is that Christ lives that perfect life that we should have lived, but we didn't. And his atoning death pays for all of our sin. His resurrection gives us the hope that just like his death wasn't final, our death will not be final. That in the end, he is restoring all things. That's the gospel. But what the, what the religious crowd was doing is they were saying, we're meeting God's law. Those people aren't. And you're giving grace to the wrong people. In other words, God's, they, 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 they said those people aren't meeting our standards. So when we look at what Jesus was actually up to, we find that God's grace is not only going to change us individually because it saves us, but it's actually going to create a unique kind of community. Because Jesus was sitting there eating, creating a community. So if we are recipients of that saving, rescuing, scandalous grace, it's going to have a renewing, reforming, sanctifying effect. It's going to be potent. It's going to actually, not just individually, all of us go home happy individually that we're saved by grace, but it is actually going to affect this community right here. Right? Jesus was attracting the kind of people that the religious crowd was rejecting. Jesus was eating with the kind of people the religious crowd didn't want any part of. The Pharisees, had an, had, their idea was that the faith community didn't include sinners. Nope. You got all the righteous people here. And Jesus' idea of the faith community was that it did. You see that? That's why many, many times it says in verse 6 and verse 7 and 9 and 10, Rejoice! There's more rejoicing in heaven over one who comes to faith in Christ, the one who comes to that saving grace, one who is found by the shepherd, one who is found. Rejoice, that great rejoicing. Jesus is saying, I come from a community that welcomes in sinners because sinners is all that there are. And this is, this is the, the work of God's grace in us. What implications does it have for us today? As those who've been saved by grace, we should be welcoming, welcoming of those who are in need of grace. right? Because we know we're struggling with our own sin, so this should create a community of compassion and not comparison as it relates to sin. 
Jesus creates this mosaic. It looks like people from different backgrounds and different uh, ethnicities and belief systems and experiences, and all of them were beloved messes in their own way. But they all gathered together with him at the center so that they could be rescued from their sin and live in community and be renewed and reformed from their sin. That's us, church. That's the community Jesus was up to. That we all gather together from different backgrounds and with, with different struggles and with, with different things. And we all walk in and we gather together as those who, with Christ at the center, have been rescued by his great grace. But also now he's doing a renewal and reform in all of our hearts by his grace. And that creates a community of compassion. I'm going to borrow from Dietrich Bonhoeffer here. Bonhoeffer says this, We must be free to confess our sin. Religiosity doesn't permit anybody to be a sinner. Therefore, we have to conceal our sin from ourselves and everybody else. But the strength of the community is the strength of common experience. And so if all of us have been saved by God's grace and it's gripped our hearts, and that should create what will create a strength here where, like Jesus, we're saying, come on in and find the rest and feed where my soul is feeding and find this great rest. The Pharisees were living in these, these lives of, of absolute comparison. And so, uh, as a result of that, they were basically saying, well, if you act in a way that I approve of, then maybe you're, maybe you're worth eating with. You know, if you think like me, act like me, if you're like me, then maybe I'll give you my time. The church community is not, in Jesus' view, built up of people who we walk in here and we kind of survey the crowd and we go, uh, I'm going to calculate the ROI. Do I want to talk to any of these people? Do I want to have fun? Do I want to shake their hand? Do I want to eat with them? Do I... You know what? I've kind of done my mental assessment. I don't think you have anything to add to my life. Uh, basically, I don't really want to say it, but I'm better than you. So I'm not going to get to know you. I'm not going to care about you. I'm just going to be an individual spiritualist, and I'm going to kind of go on my way. And Jesus is like, do you see the contrast? between the grumbling Pharisees and the community that Jesus is building, this great compassion. And one of the signs that God's grace is doing a renewing work in us is that we're personally committed to building this community that the same thing that Jesus was, was building. A community where sinners can confess their sinners and rejoice that before God are standing as irreversibly righteous and God calls sinners righteous. Beautiful and amazing. So the work of God's grace is potent because it actually changes us now think about it. If you care about people, and you love the people of, in, the, in, this, in this community, if you grow to do that, what kind of behavior is that like? It's like a shepherd. So the great, amazing, potent work of grace is that we who are lost sheep, by the grace of God's renewal... He does a work in our heart where we actually stop being curved inward, we curve outward, we look out, outside us, and we actually begin to, even though we're sheep, we begin to act like shepherds. Even though we never cease to be sheep who need God's great grace because our hearts wander, we care. It's like the community that Jesus was building. And we see this. It's the absolute opposite of what the Pharisees were up to building. They weren't interested in that at all. And so I'm going to close with this. How do we go from being witless sheep to being loving shepherds? How do we do that? Because Jesus, the great shepherd, became a sheep. Jesus, the great shepherd, he went to slaughter at the cross and he died for us. And now his, his great grace is doing a work in us. And so we gather with Christ at the center. The great shepherd became a sheep. 
And so the amazing work of his grace is that in the heart of these sheep, he makes us loving shepherds that care about one another and care about the city, even though we and in ourselves are continually in a place of renewal. And we're reminded of, of this every time we come to the Lord's table. Because at the Lord's table, we eat the bread, we, we, we drink the cup. That's a Passover meal. Every Passover meal, from the very first Passover meal, do you, do you want to know what it included? Bread, wine, and lamb. But then at the Last Supper, there's bread and wine. There's no mention of lamb. Why? Well, there's no sheep on the table because the great shepherd had become a sheep. He'd become the sacrificial lamb. There's no lamb on the table. The lamb is at the table. And he does this great and beautiful, renewing, reforming work in us by his great grace. And church, this is what he's doing in us. Our need for God's grace is constant. And that humbles us. The depth of God's grace is really extravagant, and that encourages all of us. And the work of God's grace is potent. He is, over the course of our lives, making ministers of us. Let's pray.